0: Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, a new era of epidemics.
1: What makes it a new era is that we know those epidemics are going to keep happening. We just don't know when and we don't know what's going to be the pathogen.
0: In this week's episode, two experts on Zika virus explain what that outbreak can teach us about responding to future epidemics. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Wednesday, October 25th, 2017. I'm Noah Levitt. Amy Monomiro is off this week. In this week's episode, we'll be speaking with two leading experts on Zika virus, which grabbed international attention when it seconded a million people in dozens of countries more than two years ago. As we've discussed in previous episodes, Zika has been linked to microcephaly in children born to infected mothers. That's a condition where infants are born with abnormally small heads. And while Zika is primarily mosquito-borne, some research has shown that it can also be sexually transmitted. Today, with regard to Zika, there are no large outbreaks of the virus, but researchers say it's still endemic, meaning there is regular transmission in some areas, including Brazil, which saw tens of thousands of Zika infections and more than 1,000 infants born with microcephaly. I had the chance to speak with two researchers who have studied Zika extensively. Marcia Castro is associate professor of demography in the Department of Global Health and Population at the Harvard Chan School. She has extensively studied the lingering effects of Zika in Brazil, including how the virus has affected physical and mental health, as well as its effect on birth rates in the country. And Selena Turki Martelli is a professor of epidemiology of infectious diseases and a researcher at Fiocruz in Brazil. As the Zika outbreak began, Turki worked closely with other scientists to track what was happening. Her research helped play a critical role in confirming that Zika did indeed cause microcephaly. Both Castro and Turkey will be part of a panel discussion on October twenty-sixth as part of Harvard Worldwide Week. The event, The New Era of Epidemics, Surveillance, Response, Impacts, and Challenges, will discuss lessons learned from past infectious disease outbreaks and ways to prepare for future public health crises. I spoke to Castro and Turkey about what Zika can teach us about preparing for future epidemics As well as what brazil did well in its response to the outbreak just to know that we spoke with turkey via skype from brazil so sometimes she can be a little hard to hear so you may hear me jump in occasionally to paraphrase now here's our conversation in what ways is zika kind of emblematic of this new era of epidemics and do you think that we're likely to see more infections like zika where as you kind of described that there was this massive outbreak The headlines may be gone, but it's still an endemic infection.
1: I think that what makes it a new era is that we know those epidemics are going to keep happening. We just don't know when, and we don't know what's going to be the pathogen. But it's pretty much a done deal that they're going to happen. And we have a world that is much more connected. Uh, We have cities that face major infrastructure problems. So you take... Any disease transmitted by Aedes aegypti, right? I mean, the mosquito is the king in those in those urban areas. There are plenty of spaces where breeding habitats are. You know, you can find them everywhere. So it makes um, the challenge of even controlling the vector um, um, a daunting task, honestly. So, um, so you have a connected world. You have people moving for different reasons. Um, you have. Um, conditions that favor uh, any kind of infectious disease. Honestly, if it's transmitted by vectors because of conditions of cities, (coughs) but because of high density, you know, if it's contagious person to person, you also have an ideal scenario. So in terms of Zika per se, or honestly, other diseases transmitted by Aedes aegypti, we have other viruses also transmitted by the same vector, and we could easily have an outbreak of some of those. Myaro is one example, but there are others. Um, I personally think we're gonna have another outbreak of Zika. I mean, if you look at the historical pattern of dengue, that's what you have. You have epidemic years, it comes down, then you have an other epidemic years. Um, and if you look just in Brazil, 14 was, you had lots of dengue, and then 15 you had You know, the beginning of Zika in 16 was Zika, and then you had chikungunya. It's all the same vector. Um, You don't have epidemics of all three concurrently, which is quite interesting by itself, which, you know, that's a different story. But So most likely Zika is going to come back. Where and how severe, um, we'll see. But I I think it's very unlikely that we're not going to have another outbreak of Zika.
0: And a quick interruption here, because Turkey made a key point, but it was a bit hard to understand. Turkey says that one of the main challenges about Zika is that the disease was considered by most researchers to be benign, that there were no serious health effects associated with it. Going forward, Turkey says scientists can't afford to assume that past assumptions about a disease's impact will hold true in the future.
2: So we had no previous knowledge of the association of Zika virus and burst effects. We had no uh, previous knowledge of the Zika virus introductions In large urban centers like it did in the northeast of Brazil. So it was the first large epidemic of congenital viral infection since the 40s, remember the rubella. But in a sense, it was different because uh, there was a striking spread of the virus in the American continent. I mean, imagine in one, two years' time, I mean, a map that was considered to be a blank space of Zika, all become very uh, completely uh, colored by the Zika virus infection. And interesting, multiple routes of infection are probably, we don't know how much sexual transmission plays a role in disseminating to other areas. uh, now we have a vector-borne disease that's sexually transmitted. It's vertically transmitted with a very severe birth defect um, and making epidemics of birth defects. That's something that's that seems something very out of our public health, let's say, radar or public health imaginations.
0: And just to jump in again, Castro and Turkey say there are several factors driving this new era of epidemics. One major factor is climate change, because changes in temperature may allow disease-carrying insects, such as the Aedes aegypti mosquito, to live longer than they otherwise might or to spread to areas where they previously wouldn't be able to survive. But another key factor driving this new era, says Castro, is our increasingly interconnected world.
1: We are much more mobile and connected than we used to be. I think another one is the pattern of urban growth, that basically the urban growth is much faster than the infrastructure that is provided in the city. So you have those, um, basically those concentrations of very, very poor housing. So it's almost as you have those, um, I don't like to use this word, but hotspots where everything is lacking And, and the health conditions, don't don't even resemble the average health conditions in an urban area, which is supposed to be much better in rural areas. So, um, so the urban growth is an issue, and it's not by chance that one of the sustainable development goals is completely dedicated to sustainable cities. And although, if you look at the targets of that goal, although they don't even use the word health, if each one of those is actually achieved, you're gonna get rid of a a series of diseases, including those transmitted by Aedes aegypti, because they basically deal with this major need of cities to have infrastructure and to have local conditions that basically promote uh, a a healthier environment, and therefore it's gonna impact on the health of the individuals. And the other thing is uh, the whole uh, way that people are changing, for example, deforestation. So you take Ebola, right? So you have the population getting closer contact with areas where the animals were living uh, very peacefully with the virus, n- not creating any problems. But as you reduce this distance between the forest where you know the virus is there, especially for zoonoses, and where people are living, then the contact becomes much more likely. And then the chance that you have either a zoonose that we know already or a new one emerging that then creates what Zika created. You don't know what to do, you don't know what it is, you don't know how to fight against it. Uh, It's very likely. So it's a combination of mainly the human action, right? So transforming the environment, uh, creating conditions in cities that are very suitable for disease spread
2: and, and just the way we move around. We have a very connected society at the moment like, say, internet, media, WhatsApp, and it has its advantages, like you have information faster, you can produce data and data coverage and so on. But on the contrary, these tools or these facilities also produce a lot of noise and a lot of fake news. And the idea of causing panic, I think in this new era, is much greater and uh, it's a lot of public health concern about it. And doing research in a situation like an, an epidemic is such a pressure from, for results, for response, and for all this, uh, this noise.
1: I think this is a terrific point because we live in an era where science is not really fully respected and we as scientists have a a really hard time in um, showing people that evidence based on facts is actually what should be taken into account and not statements not based on facts so um, if you take zika for example there were crazy assumptions about how the virus was spreading, a larvae sighting, a vaccine. And then in the middle of all of this, there was the Olympics as well. So there was so much nonsense going on. And that's just one example. And then, I mean, the examples are, are innumerous. Like it's vaccines are going to make you um, unable to have kids or, uh, I mean, you name it. And those things only set back efforts in public health. I have no idea how we're going to fix this. I, I think the school is here. They are trying to make a big effort. Now we have a site just to share ideas and try to reach a much larger audience. But sometimes I feel that uh, trying to break that, is even harder than the research we do.
0: I think you both touched on this idea of not creating unnecessary panic. So, what are some ways to do that? And I guess, but I guess it is difficult as you touched on, Selena, when it's happening in the moment and you're trying to gather evidence. So, are there any strategies from a communications perspective to to maybe reduce the panic when we do have an, an outbreak like Zika?
2: The timing of science. It's very different from the timing of surveillance and public health decisions. And sometimes to give a response, science to give a quick response, there was something very, uh, let's say, very difficult for scientists because we do have to write projects. We have to be very careful with the answers. Maybe uh, the understanding put forward that science is not Upon a say, I mean, it does not clear everything. We have to be, build up um, evidence. Uh, science is more complex, but we do have to have clear guides. What's possible for prevention and control? And so, I think scientists should be should learn to design better proposals in order to to give some answers or to say things clearly within this complexity of science. We don't know everything. We're just building evidence. And that's the best we can say, to make sure that people understand that we don't have the final answer. maybe we don't even have an an answer right now. But we are searching, and we're trying to cope, and we're trying to collaborate with public health uh, the best way we can.
0: And Selena, so you mean you talked about kind of the, the challenge of surveillance almost like in real time as things are kind of unfolding. So I'd be interested to know, I mean, w- with regards to Zika in Brazil, were there things that went particularly well with the response? Were there challenges? And I guess, are there any lessons to be learned for, for future disease outbreaks?
2: Yeah, I think that the first lesson is that no virus can be thought to be um, um, not to cause anything in the community if, it, if we don't know. I mean, we, sh- we have to pay attention to every new virus in a naive population and how this, uh, this population, what it's going to be defect in this population. I think that's the first lesson that we, uh, the second uh, lesson is that I think that we learn to share data and to have more collaboration. I think that science we live a very competitive ground for money, and very competitive for, let's say, for projects or for, uh, for funding. And I think that in a way, epidemics teach us that uh, we have to collaborate between institutions, and we have to con to share data and share what we know in order to speed the knowledge of the field.
0: I mean, it seems like, I mean, I've, I think, Selena, you may have said this idea of like you mean, surveilling all the diseases everywhere. <laughs> I mean, it seems like this like daunting task. So, I mean, on a really broad scale, what can larger kind of health systems do country level, international level organizations at like the WHO? I mean, what are the steps that these large systems should be taking in order to make sure people on the ground, scientists, are better prepared when an epidemic strikes?
1: Different countries have different levels of um, being ready, or even they have a surveillance system in place. Some countries just don't have a good one in place. Um, So I think what happened in Brazil is first, because it was a disease very similar to dengue in the beginning, it caught attention because it was similar, but it wasn't dengue and i really we really have to acknowledge the work that the people right there on the field seeing the first cases had in bringing the issue to attention and then the ministry called an emergency so there was a a a big role played by those people right there seeing the patients um so you know if you have that concern and if you do have some level of surveillance system. You probably can pick up things in the beginning. The issue is sometimes you're, you know, you have an outbreak starting in a country that, take Ebola, right? How many physicians were in Liberia in the beginning? How many nurses were there in the beginning? I mean, you didn't even have the infrastructure to respond, needless to say, to do surveillance. So in in that regard, I think we were lucky that Zika hit Brazil it's an odd thing to say. Brazil was committed. It was not hiding cases. Some countries were doing this, okay, because they don't want to impact tourism. Brazil had the courage. It came out. It's an emergency. It's happening. And honestly, regarding all the constraints and money, it did the best it could. It wasn't perfect, but it was great, right? So it depends where it starts. And if if it hits a country that doesn't have like a health system that is at minimum prepared to handle an emergency, be it whatever it is, and um, that it can have the resources, human and financial, to attack the problem in the beginning, then it it can be a disaster. So I think the answer is not a simple answer because it really depends on the conditions that you find on the ground when the epidemic hit. One thing that is important for health systems to pay attention is their borders, their country. So um, as we mentioned here before, it's a very interconnected world. So you take Brazil, it's a country of continental size, and we have uh, a huge problem developing now, which is malaria in Venezuela. It's all in the southern part. It's mainly falciparum. And it's a matter of time when those cases are going to start popping up in the northern part of Brazil because they're mainly miners. This is all gold mining. Um, And they are, you know, the the border is very fluid. People just cross back and forth. And there are some people from Venezuela coming to Brazil because the conditions there are so horrible that they're just fleeing. Um, So you have to pay attention of what's happening beyond your borders and be ready to response because in situations like this, you treat your own population and you treat the population across the border because that's the only way to prevent that you're gonna have a major introduction of a pathogen because of the conditions happening in the other country. And historically, that's pretty much what Brazil does in all countries that border the Amazon region, exactly in the context of malaria. But Venezuela is a special case because malaria is completely out of control. In the southern portion of the country, which is exactly the area bordering Brazil.
0: I mean, that kind of seems like an example of what you were talking about before, like the world being interconnected. That I mean, it's just not this matter of if; it's just a matter of when. Is the kind of safety net, I guess, making sure that primary care systems are strong, because then doctors on the front lines are able to see that. M- as things evolve, I mean, is that kind of the safety net underlying all this? That
1: office? is one of the most fundamental things. And, and again, it's not by surprise that one of the targets of the SDG for health is universal care. And primary health care is the cornerstone of providing universal care. And again, um, I mean, Brazil did an amazing thing in terms of providing primary care, which is a special program uh, called Family Health Strategy. Um, and You know it covers areas that before had absolutely no access to primary care and you have teams that go in there and and provide care to the to the population so we have plenty of evidence that providing uh, a special attention to primary care uh, was able to reduce a lot of the preventable conditions um, in the population and i think one one problem is sometimes you lose this primary care because of political issues. So we, we cannot neglect to consider that countries can go through economic crisis or political crisis that can uh, compromise gains of decades uh, from the past. And again, uh, Brazil is going through a major crisis right now, and the government approved some legislation that is basically dramatically cutting funds for health um, and education as well, but um, cutting for, uh, funds for health, and it's probably gonna shrink dramatically how uh, primary care is provided. So if Zika was gonna start in Brazil this year, I'm not quite sure what the outcome would be because um, there is a very different perspective on the role of the universal care in Brazil and the role of primary health care.
0: That was my conversation with Marcia Castro and Selena Turkey. If you are able to make it, the event will be held on Thursday, October twenty-sixth, at the Joseph B. Martin Conference Center here in Boston. If you can't make it, we'll have complete coverage on our website, hsph.harvard.edu. That's all for this week's episode. A reminder that you can always find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud.